Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And because that's true, let's open up our Bibles to not Hebrews, but to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are taking a break out of our series through Hebrews because it is a holiday weekend. I know what that means. Football season started for some of you yesterday. Not for Army. We lost to the University of Louisville somewhere, Monroe or something like that. So we're counting that as just a preseason game. It's not going on our record. And uh, the kids are with us, which we rejoice. But... um, I know that it would probably be unwise to dig into the depths of the balance of Hebrews chapter 6 where we are and where we'll pick up next week in the complicated theology of the oath of the priesthood and Jesus and Melchizedek. So we're going to take a little break from that and we're going to zoom out and look at this concept of Jesus, our mediator and priest, which fits really well with what we've been doing with going through in Hebrews. And so in just a moment, I'm going to read, uh, I think, some of the most glorious sentences in all of the Bible from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, boys and girls, we're really glad that you're here. I want you to do your best to listen. If you're old enough to take notes, I want you to take notes, and I want you to, to think about what I'm going to say. I'm going to try and speak to you, but also to your parents at the same time. So that means that there are going to be some things that I say that will go above your head, and that's okay. In fact, it's good for you if, to, to, to wrestle with things and not understand everything. And so if you don't understand something, I would love for you to talk to your mom and dad later this afternoon about some of the things that I said that you didn't quite get, and they will hopefully, Lord willing, help you understand that. Let me read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We're parachuting into this letter. It's called Timothy because it's written to this young pastor named Timothy by the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called sometimes the pastoral epistles. They are written to these young pastors, and it's primarily instruction of the Apostle Paul to these young pastors on how to lead the church, and how to build the church on the rock of Christ, the foundation of the gospel. And embedded in all of these three letters are these these verses every now and again where Paul just illuminates, he just brings out the the centrality of the work of Christ as the really the foundation of the church. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 is one one of those verses. Let me read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now let me pray and ask the Lord to help us think through the implications of, of this text. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for... This Labor Day weekend, thank you for bringing us to this point. Thank you for that beautiful song that the worship team led us in, that we are almost home. We don't want to drop an anchor on this side. We want to keep striving 
towards all that you have for us. Heaven is our home, but we are here now for your divine purposes. So Lord, help us to maximize this Sunday as we worship you. I pray for believers in this room that we would be further transformed into the image of Christ. I pray that I would be used as a means to to bring that about according to your good purposes. And for our friends that are here this morning that may not know you, Lord, they're not here by accident. Lord, would you, by your kindness, show them Christ? Would you give eyes to see and hearts to believe and ears to hear for those that came in unbelieving? Lord, would you do that in your sweet and kind mercy? And Lord, I pray that everything that we do, every word that I say would be used to exalt Christ and help your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you were to ask me what is the greatest need in the church today, uh, I think you probably, if you've been around Crosspoint for any amount of time, you would would probably not be surprised at my answer. I think that the greatest need in the church today is is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think this text is, is one of those verses that's a kind of crystallization. It's a, it's a kind of summary of the gospel in many ways, this mediatorial, this priestly work of Jesus. And boys and girls, that word priests or that word mediator is an important word. It, it means that Jesus is a go-between, that he stands between us and God. He represents God to us, and he represents us to God. That's what this verse is all about. And this, this verse is amplifying how Jesus does that, what he's doing in representing God to humanity and representing us to God. But if you ask me what the greatest need in the church, it would not just merely be the the knowledge of the gospel, but it would be the functional centrality of the gospel. In other words, how do we take this this knowledge, what we're going to look at today, how do we take the truths of the gospel that are that are not unfamiliar to you if you've been here for any length of time. How do we take them and what, how do they come to bear? How do they, how should they in a sense function or for lack of a better term, how should they work in our lives? What good should they do? What should they bring about in us? And I want us to think about that today. So to do that, I want to ask and answer, Lord willing, three questions. And these three questions, I think, spring from this idea of Jesus as our mediator. So here's the three questions. You can just have it up there. We're just going to work our way through these three questions. Number one, why do we need a mediator? Jesus is called a mediator here in this text, and he's the one mediator between God and men. So we want to think about why we need a mediator. Secondly, I want us to think about what Jesus has done to mediate for us. And then thirdly, what is Jesus doing for us right now? So why do we need a mediator? What has Jesus done to mediate for us? And then thirdly, what is Jesus doing for us right now? First question, why do we need a mediator? That's the point of this text, to to tell us that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Why do we need a mediator? Well, the clear and simple and obvious answer to that question biblically is because of of sin, because of human rebellion. We, We know if we're familiar at all with just some basic premises of the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, this famous verse in the Bible says that we have all sinned, every single one of us, every single person that's ever lived except for Jesus has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
But, but the Bible amplifies it a little bit more. And here's another familiar verse to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You, you've heard this many times before here. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the human condition. And here he's explaining, he's setting up why we need someone to represent us. He says to the Ephesian church, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So not only were, were the people here that he's talking to dead in their sins, in other words, they were spiritually incapable. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. They were, he was speaking to people who were alive, but there was this spiritual inability brought about in their lives because of sin. And not just that, but they were caught up in this flow of this world, this fallen world. And they were picking back up in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to our adversary, the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And listen to this last part. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here in these first three verses of Ephesians 2, Paul is telling us the condition of mankind after the fall in the garden. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 willingly disobeyed God's good, clear command. And what happened was sin entered humanity and death, spiritual death, spread to all mankind. And what is this spiritual death? It is separation from God immediately physically. In fact, Adam and Eve were, were excommunicated. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. But spiritually, there's a death here. There's an ultimate spiritual death, an inability that happens in a person and all people. Everything that flows out of Adam and Eve now inherits this nature which is called spiritual inability. It's a, it's a depravity of every part of our being. And what's the What's the condition it's left us in? He says that we are by nature, by nature now, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's not just speaking, this is important, he's not just speaking to the Ephesians, but he's, he's indicting all of humanity before salvation in this grouping. He says that we are by nature children, objects of God's wrath. Now, this may surprise you if you're not familiar with the scriptures or maybe you're not yet a believer in Jesus. This may surprise you that the Bible speaks this way. It might even offend you or trouble you that God would, would allow a fall that then would put the people that he's created in this situation where they are spiritually unable to do anything about it and then also as a consequence objects of his wrath. And you may be troubled by that, and I, I get that. The Bible is not unsympathetic to this question. In fact, there are times where God will write into the scriptures, he will write into the human author's emotions, questioning of God, like, God, why would you allow this? In fact, if you go home this afternoon and you read Romans chapter 9, 
it's all about this objection of, God, why would you even allow this? If, if you're sovereign and we're just a creature, why would you allow this? And Paul's answer in that sort of is from a human philosophical level. It's a bit unsatisfactory. Basically, Paul's answer, and, and I, I just want to kind of tell you what the Bible says. Paul's answer is, wait a minute now, wait a minute. God is God and you're a creature. He's the potter, you're the clay. And that's the way the Bible handles sometimes our, our objections. But here's what I want you to do. And you might well say, Brad, when you said uh, you might be troubled with this, I thought you were going to give me some comfort, but you actually just troubled me more by basically saying that the Bible says that's the way it is. Okay, and you're, you're like, man, I'm glad I came to church today. Thank you, Brad. But I want you to think about something with me. Think about something. Think about this. At the beginning of our service, Doug read... Psalm 103, and that last verse, did you catch that last verse? It says, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. I want you to consider this for a moment. Think about this. We are mere creatures. God is the creator. Could it be, follow the logic here, and this isn't a logic that gets tied up nicely at the end of my sentence here on this side of eternity. It's a mysterious logic, and it's a logic, it's a humble logic. Could it be that God is so God that there are things about him and the way he has decided to order creation and make things be that we just cannot finally piece together on this side of eternity as humans? There is a maturity to humility as the creature. I am not advocating for a kind of absent-mindedness and saying, well, you know, I don't have to think deeply about some of these things. I'm not advocating that at all. What I am saying is that you can run every philosophical argument ever proffered in the history of mankind, and you will never arrive at a satisfactory answer because until we admit that we are the creature and he's the creator and he has the ultimate right to create a world that he can do whatever he wants and he is not bound by our sense of justice and rightness, we will be frustrated. And the Bible leaves us with this picture of God as glorious and holy and sovereign and good and man as fallen and separated from him in our natural state. And that leads us to the answer of this question. Well, then that's, be, that's why we need a mediator. We, we need somebody to represent us. We, we can't do it ourselves because humanity is dead. We're, we're spiritually unable to do anything about our condition. And that's setting up, that's setting up the good news of the gospel. The diamond, the beauty of the diamond shines against the black velvet backdrop of human need and fallenness. And so what are a couple implications? What's the functional centrality of this, understanding this? What's, what, why is it so important? Well, I think there's two things that we need to, to, to sort of think about as implications. Why it's good for us to understand the state of humanity before the gospel hits a human heart. Why we need a mediator. The first implication is, is humility. 
not just towards God, as I've just spoken of. Clearly, we need humility towards God, but a kind of, a kind of humility towards one another. That there's nobody that's ever lived in any culture, in any country, in any ethnic group, in any situation, in any demographic, in any neighborhood who is inherently better off than anybody else, spiritually speaking. We are all born in this same state. Verse 3 applies to every culture, every nation, every ethnic group, every economic group, every side of the tracks, every neighborhood. We are by nature born as children of wrath, and all of us, whether we are Americans or Ugandans or Mexicans or Canadians or Californians, all of us need a mediator. We all, we all start in that same place. And so when we look around people, even in our own city, or people just at the grocery store, or just people not like us, the person who's been gripped by grace and who understands the mediatorial work of Christ and what Christ has done for them, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but a person who understands their need has no right to look down the end of their nose at anybody. And that type of humility grips a soul that knows they need a mediator. Secondly, not just humility, an implication of this, the functional centrality of this truth in the life of a Christian is not just humility towards other people, but hope towards other people. There's nobody beyond God's reach. If everybody needs a mediator for the same purpose, we are all dead in our sins. And, you know, some of us are just, before we come to Christ, we are just more dressed up corpses than other people. I mean, a corpse is a corpse. Whether it's, will, whether it's wearing nice clothes and has lipstick or whether it has nothing, a corpse is a corpse. And so there's nobody, there's nobody that is beyond God's reach because God delights not in finding somebody who's a good candidate because God delights in saving those who are dead in their sins. Every resurrection of faith, every person that's been ever born again is the same miracle that happens every single time. They're dead and now they're alive. Nobody's beyond God's hope. No child is too far gone. No spouse is beyond the reach. His arm is not short. His ear is not dull, Isaiah says. He can save whoever he wants, whenever he wants, out of whatever he wants. And that should give us great hope. That's just a functional centrality of the truth of why we all need a mediator. Which then leads us to the second question. In the whole Old Testament, you think about this idea of priest. The priests in the Old Testament were these insufficient, ultimately... Uh, incapable priests, mediators who could never quite solve the problem, but they were never meant to solve the problem in their priestly duties, in their animal sacrifices that they administered. They were meant merely to be shadows, or think of it this way, billboards to point us to. You know, you're here in the South. If you're not from the South, I'm not from the South. And I noticed when I first came down from New York after college to drive here to Fort Benning, now Fort Moore, I noticed that about every other exit, there was a sign that said Cracker Barrel, another few miles. <laughs> Cracker Barrel. Now it's Chick-fil-A. You're in the south. Cracker Barrel on one side, Chick-fil-A on the other. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And in the same way, I shouldn't mention food stuff because then you guys start, you start salivating and all you want to do is, 
But, but the Old Testament priests serve as that way. They serve as billboards on the interstate of our life that are never meant. You don't pull over to the side of the, bill, of the by the billboard and you stop and say, okay, where, where, where are the pancakes? You keep driving because the billboards, the priests, the pictures, the shadows of the sacrifices and the priests in the Old Testament were never meant to save. They were meant to point us to the mediator, the priest that would come, which brings us to the second question, what has Jesus done to mediate for us? That's what Paul's point here in 1 Timothy 2, that he is the mediator between God and men, the, Christ, the man Christ Jesus. So what has Jesus done? Here's the second question. What has Jesus done to mediate for us? Well, we're going to get into that in Hebrews chapter 7 in a couple weeks, and it's just Hebrews chapter 7 is absolutely glorious. We're going to look at all that he's done. But I want you to think in three terms here. Three, three, three aspects of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So first, his life. Jesus, a lot of times when people think about the gospel, it's, it's obvious for us to think about the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that's absolutely essential. That's the very, that's the very heart of the gospel, yes and amen, but there's more to Jesus' mediatorial work. There's a life that was lived that got to that cross, and his life was a life, and this is important, without this, there is no saving cross. His life was a life of perfect obedience and righteousness in our place. So the man Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, the man Christ Jesus, he lived as a man. And this is the mystery of mysteries, that God, God the Son, would become a man like us. This is what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, the incarnation, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So in other words, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that the Bible says he's with God, he's co-equal with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune three in one. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's believers that would come after him. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So do you see there, there's this mediating work that Jesus does. He, he becomes like us so that he can represent us. He can stand in our place to God. That's his life, his obedience, his life. So where we have disobeyed God and deserved God's wrath, which is what we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus stores up righteousness by never sinning, completely obeying God, and then lays down that perfect, real, true human sacrifice on the cross to absorb the wrath for all those that would ever trust in him. His real humanity, without Jesus' real life, without his real obedience and his real law abiding, there is no atoning cross. But he's not just a man, he's also God's in Ephesians, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. So he's not just a man on the cross, he's the eternal son of God on the cross. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1, 3 and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So think about this. This is, this, we're, we're, this is the glorious mystery. This is so beautiful. It's, 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 on some level, it's incomprehensible. But Jesus' mediating work on the cross is as 
a true man and the eternal son of God. So he has all of this human righteousness stored up and he has all of this eternal holiness as the son of God, God the son, and on the cross, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience can satisfy and extinguish and remove all of the wrath for all of those that would ever trust in him. That's what Jesus' life does on the cross, which leads us to the second his life. Secondly, his death. And we just read this word in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. I'll read it again. What does this man, this perfect man, this eternal God's life do on the cross? He became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's the word. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. You, you've been around. If you've been around, you know this word. Come on. If you've been across, do you, do you know? Do you, this is a referendum on my pastoral leadership for the past 18 years. Have you heard the word propitiation before? Please, please give me a north and south. You've heard it before. Okay. Good. Thank goodness. What does it mean? This is the, one of the most important words in all of the world. It means that Jesus' death does something on the cross. It's not merely an example of love and humility and, and selflessness. It's that. But so much more centrally, it is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means that Jesus absorbs, satisfies, extinguishes, removes, cancels, dries up the wrath of God and turns it, turns it into God's favor. On the cross, Jesus has done that. That's his me. He stands between our punishment and God, and he takes it. That's what Jesus' death does on the cross. That's how good the gospel is. But he doesn't just stay. So it's not just his life. It's not just his death. It is also his resurrection because he gets up from the cross. He gets up from the tomb. He, he defeats death. He, God raises him from the grave because he was innocent to vindicate him. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a couple, just a, a chapter over from where we started in 1 Timothy 2. This is what he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. In other words, we saw him in the flesh. He was, boy, this is, a, he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Go back to that phrase, he was vindicated by the Spirit. So that's God vindicating Jesus' the rightness, the holiness, the satisfactory nature of his perfect life on the cross, his, his eternal holiness. He's vindicated. He's, he's, he's raised again by the Spirit, and now he has defeated death, hell, and the grave. That's Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54, about halfway through that verse. This is what Paul, this is what Paul concludes because of his resurrection, that death now is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, oh, death. Where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Listen to verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul saying there? Because Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave through his resurrection. Because he's alive, he promises to make alive all those who are in him. And even if we die, and most of us will, he will raise us again, and he, we will be with him forever. So now death, although it's necessary, it's lost its sting because now it's merely God's servant who brings us all the way home. So his life, his death, his resurrection is what Jesus has done to mediate for us. Now this is wonderful. I hope you think this is wonderful news. But it's merely news. It's merely just news. And in fact, it's damning news unless it actually comes to a person and does something to their heart. In verse 6 of what we read at the very beginning, it says that there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What does that word for all mean? Does that mean that everybody's saved? No, that's not what the word all means there. Sometimes when the Bible uses all, in fact, many of the times when Paul uses the word all, he's talking not just about every single person on the earth without exception, like all seven billion people in the world, but he's talking about all kinds of people, not just without exception, but without distinction, meaning all kinds of people. And in the context of first century Jewish mind, he's saying, hey, the gospel's not just for us Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. So all, so all, Jesus died for all kinds of people. Rich people, poor people, smart people, uh, steak knives and butter knives, to use an analogy that we like here, right? And some of us are steak knives, and some, most of us are actually butter knives. But like I've said before, give me, give me a battalion of, give me a, give me a platoon of butter knives, and I'll take on a brigade worth of steak knives, because steak knives are always just trying to show how sharp they are, and butter knives get stuff done, but I digress. <laughs> Jesus died for all kinds of people, all kinds of people, but how does it actually come to a person? How does a person actually receive these things? Well, Paul, Paul tells us. In Romans chapter 3, I referenced it earlier, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember what we learned about that in Ephesians 2? That means we're all dead in our sins. But verse 24, listen to verse 24. Okay, so this is the state. We're all, we've all fallen short. We're dead. We are justified, verse 24, or made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So grace hits a human heart. It awakens a person. They understand the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So grace comes and grace enlightens a human mind. They understand that Jesus has been put forward as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for their sins by his blood. Now this, this next part is so important. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. So how does this news, how does this mediating work of Jesus actually 
come to a person? Is it because you're born into a Christian family or you're born in the Bible belt or you, you just have a little bit of knowledge of the Bible? No, is it, does it come to you because you're a little bit better in your morality than anybody else? No, the Bible says that it doesn't come to you by your innate goodness because you're dead in your sins. It comes to you by faith. Grace hits a human heart, awakens you, God gives you a gift of faith, and you trust in Jesus. How does Christ's mediation, how does his priestly work actually do any good in your life? Because of faith in Christ and not in yourself. And that's the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus has done to mediate for us. Okay, so let's do a couple implications before we land this plane and look at the last question, which will go quicker. What, 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 why is this? What, what is this? Okay, you're, Brad, I've been at Crosspoint for a while. I know the gospel. What, how, how does this? What's the functional centrality? How does this actually work in my life? Well, friends, if he, if the, if he has satisfied our greatest need, which is to be reconciled with a holy God, so that we do not spend eternity separated from Him. If that truly is our greatest need, and Jesus has answered it, he satisfied it, if you are right with God, then what can this world, what can man do to you? And friends, here's, here's the dreaded disease that we all face, we all deal with, even as Christians, we deal with gospel amnesia. We forget the centrality. We forget the primary importance of Christ's mediation for us before a holy God. And we run off and let everything else in life make us think that everything's going to go to kit and caboodle unless this happens. We fear some circumstance. We fear some loss. We fear man. We fear the loss of reputation. And all of these, I'm not trying to act like we don't have, we don't care about the world anymore. But what I find in my own heart and in the heart of the people that I pastor along with these other elders, which is you, is that we are also prone to let the fears and the worries and the concerns of this world move from being reasonable to unreasonable and therefore become like functional gods in our life. Whether it's the raising of children I think, let me just say this, I think that one of the things that, um, I think most of you young parents in here are a lot better at being, I think you're thinking about things much more than parents in my generation and previously were. I think you're actually, I think you, but I also think that you're suffering from a kind of information overload and it's made you super anxious. And I think sometimes most young moms and dads just need to relax a little bit and, and, and get off of the mommy blogs, and, and it's okay if your child is not playing the violin by four years old and, and, and you know, a, a savant. It's okay. It's okay. Just relax. And I think that that transfers to many other areas of life. I think we, we make so much of this world. We make so much of being politically right or having the right stance. 
or being seen as faithful in this, that, or the other, that all of these things that we measure ourselves by become functional gods for us. And instead of being free in being reconciled before God and then engaging appropriately with the reasonable concerns of this life, we get hamstrung and we make idols out of little things that are temporary and earthly. And we all do them. We all do them. I think about all you young uh, military guys in here and just how, you know, getting through that next course can be such an idol or, or getting the right assignment, whatever. I know that feeling. I can remember being here 30 years ago as a young lieutenant and maybe I remember thinking, I remember thinking this. I was, I was, I, I was dating Jennifer at the time and I remember thinking to my shame making such an idol out of this one particular course that I had to go through, I remember thinking that if I don't get through this, if I fail out of this, I'm just going to kind of quietly just sort of go to my next post, and I won't even contact her or anybody else because I was pinning, and at this time I was a confessing Christian, I was pinning all of my value, all of my hope, all of my esteem in this one particular army course. And it's important. And, you know, young army guys should try their best. But do you see how reasonable concerns can so quickly overtake our souls and they become an idol because we forget the functional centrality of the gospel in our life? And you, you fill in the blanks. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would fill in the blanks of what your situation is and what you are prone to forget and make functionally primary in your life apart from the gospel. Which leads us to the third question. What is Jesus doing now for us? And we end on this. Well, not only has he lived a life that's perfect, that died on the cross and rose victoriously, he has ascended. So he is seated at the right hand of God. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and following Picking up, picking up in the middle of the sentence, Paul says this when he's praying for the church in Ephesus. He's praying, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So after Jesus' resurrection, he is ascended to the right hand of God. We see that in the first chapter of Acts and at the end of the Gospels. And where is he now? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, verse 22, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's already happened. He's already ruling and reigning in this way. Jesus is presently ruling and reigning over all things. And not only that, but he is interceding for us. He is praying. He's bringing our name up for our good before the throne of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, draw near to God through him, since, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay. So what is Jesus doing now, if I could put it sort of bluntly? Jesus is praying for and interceding 
and speaking good to the Father for you if you're a Christian. Take your greatest anxiety, take your greatest fear, and bring that to that biblical picture. And let the light of the glory of the Son of God's ministry for you burn up that fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? The functional centrality of the gospel. We need a mediator. Jesus is mediated for us. And he's presently in heaven, ruling, reigning, interceding for you guaranteeing that the song that we sang, Almost Home, will come to pass in the lives of his people. Friends, from that, I can live, I can fight. I can fight what's still inside of me that's against God, and I can fight this world that's opposed to him. I can fight, I can fight, and so can you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. May we see Jesus and may the gospel and the good news of what he has done as our priest, as our mediator, as our go-between, may it become so rehearsed in our hearts that, that we just can't forget it. And may we do the work, the hard work, the good and glorious and satisfying work of of making this truth work in our lives for your glory and our good. Lord, if there's a person in this room who has never heard these things before, presented in this way, Lord, I'm not asking that you would help them reach down deep inside themselves and find something in them that would make them commendable to you, but I'm asking that you, by your grace, as a gift would open their eyes so that they could see that redemption, right standing, reconciliation, forgiveness can only be found through Jesus and he must be received by faith. Lord, would you give the gift of faith to anyone in this room who came in not having it? And would you do it, Lord, for your glory? Would you delight in making another spiritually dead person alive so that they can turn from themselves and trust in Jesus and be reconciled to you. And Lord, for the rest of us, please, Lord, help us see this. Lord, give us a, 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 just a, another dose to help us fight gospel amnesia. And I pray that you do it for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen.